It's great to be together. Last year we got ripped off. You're out in the parking lot, but here we are uh, inside of our church living room, and we get to worship the Lord Jesus. Now, there's been a lot of wonderful things that have happened this past year. I know we've had a lot of babies, for example, born in our church in 2021. How many of you know a baby that was born this year, either in our church or outside of our church? Just throw your hand up. So it's always great. We have lots of babies that have been born. And when children come into the world, Carl, Carl Sandburg said it this way, a baby is God's opinion that the world must go on. So it's wonderful to see new life being birthed. But when we have our children, if you've been a parent or maybe you're on the cusp of becoming one, being a, child, a, a parent can also be a little bit intimidating because children can do things that make us a little tense as parents. Their behavior isn't always pristine. They may, they may go through health issues that cause us to be a little bit afraid at times. We might spend an occasion or two wondering what the future holds for them. It can be kind of intimidating being a parent and all the challenges and difficulties surrounding that. Well, on Christmas Eve, we come together to celebrate and to commemorate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. And in Christian tradition, we, we sing hymns. We sing songs, spiritual songs about Christ. Two very famous Christmas songs that are often sung include O Holy Night and Silent Night. And in these older Christmas songs, we proclaim the birth of Jesus and we proclaim that his birth was markedly different from all other births. So every, every child that's born is, 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 a, is wonderful. We celebrate that. But Jesus' birth into the world was markedly different because Jesus would bring not sin, which every child ultimately brings into the world, but Jesus would bring hope. He would bring salvation. He would manifest the fullness of God among us. We speak of his birth at night, O holy night, or silent night, because the New Testament affirms that Jesus was born in the evening as the savior of the world. And you might wonder, like, why do we gather on Christmas Eve more often than not? Some churches also gather on Christmas Day. We don't, unless it's a Sunday. But why do we gather on Christmas Eve instead of Christmas Day to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you're familiar with the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 1, you'll know that unlike our thinking, that in the Hebrew mindset, every new day begins in the evening, around six o'clock. And this is why in Genesis 1, when God describes the first day, he doesn't say there was morning and evening. He says there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and there was morning the third day. Because in the Hebrew mindset, a new day started at night. And Jesus was born at night, so we're actually celebrating, you could say, in the English calendar, a day early, but actually we're celebrating Jesus' birth because he was born in the evening 
And even though it was marked on the calendar as the day after, it would have been Christmas Eve. Well, because of this, we have this celebration that Christians have historically met on the evening before Christmas. Of course, you all know we don't know the exact date. Okay, it wasn't December the 25th, but that's fine. It doesn't really matter. We don't know the exact date, but nevertheless, we circle this date on our calendar to meet because we want to worship a baby that is unlike any other and accomplish things that no other baby could possibly accomplish. Now, speaking of Jesus' life, perhaps the most pivotal, historically famous verse in all of scripture that captures the work of Christ, the offer of Christ, and the call of Christ is John 3.16. And on this Christmas Eve, I'd like to spend some time with you reflecting upon this very well-known passage of scripture. It reads this way in the English Standard Version of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, which means die, but have eternal life. Jesus literally is a proclamation of divine love for dying people. That's fundamentally what Jesus' life and ministry is about. Now, John 3.16, you all probably know it or you've heard it. Are you familiar with the context? John 3.16 comes sort of at the tail end of a conversation that Jesus was having in the first century with a Jewish man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night because he didn't want to be seen by his peers to get the scoop, the inside story on Jesus, who he was, what his purposes were, what his plan was to ask some theological questions. And in the course of that conversation, Jesus essentially told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is a very literal thinker. So he's like, well, how is that possible? How do I climb back into my mother's womb? And he's like, no, no, no. you must be spiritually born again. And in keeping with Jesus' maverick way, he points through Nicodemus, through this famous passage of scripture, he points all of humanity away from our attempts to solve our sin problem through religious efforts. And he focuses on the heart of the issue, which is the issue of the heart, that every human being is born in sin. And what we really need is not a little more church or a few more Bible verses, but we need a renovation of our hearts We need to repent of our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's called being born again. That language has gone out of vogue for whatever reason, but it's biblical language and we need to resurrect it. You must be born again. You were born once, but if you're born once, you'll die twice, physically and spiritually. But if you're born twice, physically and spiritually, you'll only die once physically, but you won't die spiritually. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. We must be born again. And in this incredible pronouncement, God demonstrates his love for the world. He gives us the pathway, the the open door, if you will, to experience his love and to be forgiven of our sins and to be born again. Let's just break down this verse word by word, phrase by phrase, 
and digest it, maybe a little bit more than we're, we're used to. Again, many of us have memorized this. We know this verse. We've heard this verse. But have we really taken time to digest it piece by piece, word by word? It's all about God's love. For example, the first few words of this verse remind us of the extent of God's love when it says, for God so loved, not just you and you and you, but for God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Now by world, we are to understand this as a reference to all people groups, to Jewish people and to Gentile people, to people who are descendants of Abraham and people who are not descendants of Abraham. Now for you and I, it might seem kind of odd to divide the world up into just two categories, Jews, it's just one group, and Gentiles. But in the Jewish mindset, that's how they thought about the world. There were Jews, God's covenant people, and everyone else was a Gentile. Who did Jesus originally give this verse to? A Jewish man. And it would have struck Nicodemus as quite surprising to hear a Jewish rabbi say to him that God's plan was to extend his love, not just to the descendants of Abraham, but God's plan through Christ was to extend his love to the world. This points to the inclusivity of the gospel. There aren't multiple paths to God. There's one path to God for all men and all women, regardless of the language you speak, the shade of brown in your skin, the texture of your hair, your economic status. There's one way to God and Christ is that way. And through Christ, we encounter the, the extent of God's love for us. Some Christians, by the way, have debated whether or not this verse means that God loves all people without distinction. And if it does, then the question's been asked, then why doesn't God give equal installments of his love to all people in the form of blessings in this life and in the form of salvation in the future? Now, this is a fascinating debate. It's an interesting debate. And we'll talk about that at some point in the future. I just sort of dangled a carrot in front of you, but I'm not going to allow you to take a bite. Because I don't, I don't think that this is what Jesus intended for us to spend our time discussing when he declared to Nicodemus and by extension to the world that God's love is inclusive, that God's love jumps the, the historic boundaries of Jews and Gentiles, and that his through his love, Jesus, God, through Christ, would take an interest in all mankind, not just Abraham's family. And I hope that that was evident tonight as you heard scripture read and heard words sung by folks that may speak a different language than you do. That Christ has been successful in his mission in drawing people unto himself from all tribes, tongues, and nationalities. Now, the extent of God's love becomes even more impactful when we realize the scriptures teach us that we don't deserve it. Compared to one another, we might be 
lovely people. Some of you are lovely people. I personally would not want to be called that. It would probably offend my masculinity. I could think of some other compliments I'd prefer. But many of you are lovely people and many of you are lovable people. You're lovable people. But we call you lovely or lovable because we know a lot of other people and we can compare you to them and we're like, yeah, you're lovely or you're lovable. But compared to God, we are not lovely and we're not particularly lovable. That's what the word of God teaches us. In the same gospel in John chapter five, I'll give you two examples of this. In John chapter five, verse 42, the Bible says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That's a bleak depiction of human nature. And in John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love him. But in the context, they don't. So we're not naturally inclined toward loveliness. Instead, we tend to be inclined towards meanness, nastiness, sinfulness, rebellion. I I asked you at the beginning if you knew of any babies that had been born. Most of you said you had. And we love babies, but we know the potential in babies, right? We know their potential to grow up and be nasty little creatures. I came across this uh, list called the property laws of a toddler. I just want to throw this out to you to illustrate this. Some good laughs in here. The property laws of a toddler. So you think of a very small child just learning to walk, And you see in small children just learning to walk, toddling around, the sin nature. Here are the property laws of the common toddler. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it long ago, it's mine. If it's mine... It must never appear to be yours in any way, shape, or form. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. But if it's broken, it's yours. You know, and, and this, is, this is true of children. And in many respects, it's true of adults as well. We, we've been, become pretty creative in how we manifest our depravity. So we, we don't have to be taught how to be unloving, how to be selfish, how to steal, how to be lustful, how to be dishonest. It, it, we know how to do that. No one has to tell us how to do that. We know how to do that. And if God were made it of sugar and spice and everything nice, we, we would be the ones made it of snakes and snails and alligator tails. We're not like God. God is holy and perfect. We are not. And because we don't even know how to love God in and of ourselves, God had to come our way. So when we speak of God's love, this is really, really important. When we speak of God's love, we must always think of God's love as initiating love. He's the one that starts the relationship. He's the one that makes the first offer. He's the one that demonstrates his desire for relationship with us. And in fact, the reason he can love us that much 
is because if you look at 1 John 4, 16, it says God is love. You may through Christ learn to be loving, but God is, that's a being word. He is love. That passage goes on to say, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. But returning to the theme of chapter one of that passage, it says that he shines in darkness. His love replaces human hatred towards God and others and lights up our world. Have you considered the extent of God's love for you lately? Thought about that a little bit? Should fuel your worship, should fuel your prayer life, should fuel your treatment of other people. If you consider God's love for you long enough, you'll love him back. There's a lie that sort of pops up now and again in culture, especially in music, and that is that we must love ourselves first in order to love others or love God. But actually, because we don't have the capacity to even understand love apart from God, we need to accept and encounter and receive God's love for us. And then we figure it out. Okay, now I know what love looks like in my marriage, in my parenting, in my relationship with other people. God is loving. God's love is not some esoteric pie in the sky kind of thing. It's displayed in the most vivid ways possible. This is the extent of God's love. God so loved the world. And then we have the greatness of God's love. This is the second point I want to meditate upon. The greatness of God's love is declared in the phrase, he gave his only son. Each word of that statement is pregnant with God's love for you. He gave his only son. Let's break it down. He, God, is the one that took the initiative to love us through Christ. Gave. The father didn't just tell us that he loves us. He showed it. He gave his son in order to save us. His, the son was an eternal, peaceful relationship with the father. And yet the father still willingly gave his very son for our sins. Someone told me when I was a kid, I don't remember who it was, that God created us because he was lonely. It's not true. That's a lie. There's no deficiency in God's satisfaction of himself whatsoever. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly capable of loving and one could say satisfying God's relationality, God's relational nature. God didn't create us because he was twiddling his thumbs in eternity, having a lonely moment. God created us because he loves us, but he was willing to give his son, which is the term we use to describe the second person of the triune Godhead for our own sins. Only, this is a word that reminds us of the exclusive nature of Christ. There is only one eternal son to give. There is only one way to be saved. Son, as the second member of the triune Godhead, Jesus surrenders himself to the will of the father with hope, with hope, he was in eternal relationship with the Father, but he surrenders himself to the will of the Father and he comes to earth so that he might ultimately die for us. No one else could accomplish this. Muhammad couldn't accomplish it. Krishna couldn't accomplish it. The Buddha couldn't accomplish it. I can't accomplish it. 
accomplish it and you can't accomplish it for yourself. But the eternal son can and did. You know, as parents, any, any one of us would, of course, give up our lives for our children. If our children was in danger, we'd give up our lives. We'd put our lives at great risk to rescue our children. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a parent who would give up their child's life to save someone else who in the moment doesn't want it, isn't asking for it, and doesn't even appreciate it. But that's what the father did. Astonishingly, we find that kind of love displayed in the father's act of giving us Jesus. You know, when people mistreat us in life and we're always gonna be mistreated on occasion, I think it's true that we sort of have this sliding scale of emotions, depending on how harshly we've been mistreated. The sliding scale probably starts with dislike. I don't, I don't like that person. Maybe that moves to disdaining them, sort of looking down on them. Then it goes to despising them, having like a, just sort of a guttural disgust in that person's presence. And if it keeps going far enough, we might even wish for their death. So it's generally how we respond as humans, let's be honest, to our enemies. These are natural human responses. So how is it that God can be disgusted by sin and still love the world? Well, the amazing thing about God is God can separate his disgust with sin from his love for the sinner. And he can love us in spite of us. So we tend to love each other because of some characteristic that the other person brings into the mix. We just, I just really like your personality or you're really beautiful or we, just, we have chemistry, we just get along. So I love you. Or we have a similar worldview or we're raised in the same family or we play the same sports or we went to the same school. So I, I love you or you're my twin. So I love you. Our love is always dependent. It's contingent. It's conditional, but God's love isn't conditional. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And this is why our worship, this is a critical insight, by the way, this is why our worship trumps the feeble attempts of any false religion to worship their God. Because in all other religions, bar biblical Christianity, I've studied them all, and every other religion, bar biblical Christianity, when you worship God or the gods or the divine or Allah or whoever you've named your higher power, in some way, shape, or form, you're worshiping him in order to appease him. Because you've done something to earn his or its or their favor. You hear me? But that's not how Christians worship. We worship because he is gracious, he is merciful, he is loving, and he has given his all because we were incapable of giving anything. So when we worship, we don't say, hey, Lord, look what I did for you this week. Do you love me a little more? No. We don't worship God to try to 
get his attention, to try to prove something to him. We worship him because he is gracious and loving and merciful. And this is why there's freedom. There's freedom in loving God. God's love is unconditional love as manifested through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And because of God's great love, we possess a hope that transcends all the troubles of life. We believe in resurrection hope. So this is the hope that God presents to us. We have the extent of God's love, the greatness of his love, and finally, the hope of God's love. Look at the, look at the hope-filled statement here at the end of this verse, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So you should be asking yourself a very simple question right now. Do I believe? And by the way, biblical belief is not just head knowledge. Oh yeah, I believe it historically factual. Jesus walked on the earth and he did this and did that. And his life is accurately recorded in the scriptures. Check mark. No. To believe is to place your faith in. You've seen the chair illustration, I'm sure before. You got a chair, you're looking at it. You're like, do you believe that chair will hold you up? Yeah, I believe. Why do you believe? Because I've sat in a lot of chairs. They haven't collapsed yet. And this one clearly has some solid legs and a nice seat and back. So I'm not even going to think twice. I would more than, feel more than comfortable sitting in the chair. That's belief. But faith is when you park your butt in the seat. That's faith. When you actually rest in the chair. So when we talk about believing in Christ, we're talking about putting our faith in him. Whoever believes in him is not just cerebral knowledge of it's resting, it's staking your life on, it's staking your present and your eternity on Christ. It's radical belief, it's sold out belief. So do you really believe? If you do believe, negatively it says we will not perish. Physically we still will. We're all destined to die unless Christ returns first. But that doesn't scare Christians. I mean, evidently, it's, it, it, I've noticed in the past year and a half, it scares a lot of Christians. But it doesn't scare mature Christians. The idea of death doesn't scare us at all. We might be mildly opposed to the method. But we're not scared of dying. Because we know that if we're born twice, we only die once. We know that. We believe that. We actually believe that. Not just up here. We actually put our faith in it. So we will not perish. Positively, it says, but have eternal life. And by the way, that's in the present tense. You don't have to wait for it. You actually have it now. It's a possession that you have now. It's in the present tense. So you have, if you've trusted in Christ, eternal life right now as a gift from the Father. In Ezekiel 18, 23, God said, this is many centuries earlier, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. It is in the moral heart of God that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ and surrender yourself to him and trust in him and trust in him alone and receive his loving offer of eternal life. And if you do, if you repent of your sins, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be and you are saved. And you have as a present tense possession, the sure hope of eternal life forevermore. 
So be encouraged by these words. If you're a Christian, be encouraged by these words. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, surrender yourself to him. Repent and believe and trust and you'll be born again. You're all were evidently born once, but you'll be born again. And eternal life will be your sure hope forever and ever. 